travel puts things on your radar and plants seeds and it just opens ideas and possibilities like, wow, I hadn't even thought that's possible. And suddenly you, you meet other people that are doing these impossible things and it just, it just kind of expands what you can do in this world and, and makes you know, the radical not so daunting. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I revisit another iconic travel experience from my past. You know, back in episode 79, I talked about my very first van vagabonding trip. And in episode 124, I talked about jumping freight trains across the Pacific Northwest when I was in my 20s. Today, I talk about another of my favorite travel experiences, this one having to do with the glory of traveler hostels, in this case, the Sultan Hotel in Cairo, Egypt, which is one of the most memorable places I've ever stayed. I actually wrote an essay about it called Backpacker's Ball at the Sultan Hotel, which appeared in my second book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There. I read that essay in this episode, which makes it kind of an audiobook episode, but I also talked to my old friend Dan Neely, who I met at Cairo's Sultan Hotel 20 years ago. You might recall Dan last appeared back in episode 42, which explored natural disasters and how to survive them. I actually met lots of people at the Sultan who I'm still friends with today, and believe it or not, I quoted six of them at various times in the first edition of Vagabonding, which goes to show just how socially rich hostile environments can be. In a way, this whole episode is a celebration of travel hostels. In the case of Dan, the Sultan Hotel influenced the work he later did in the Peace Corps, and hostels in general influenced his eventual move to New Zealand. You know, I recorded this episode shortly before COVID-19 became a global pandemic, and since then, crowded social places like hostels have come to be seen as synonymous with the spread of the virus, to the point that it's kind of hard to say when it will again become possible to enjoy hostels. I do hope that travel as we know it in the future will include a vibrant hostel scene since traveling overseas can be an unexpected education in so many ways and the social energy that happens at hostels can be a catalyst for that education. Dan and I talk about what exactly made the Sultan Hotel special and how it helped us experience Cairo in a more intensive way. We talk about what happens in a place when you stop sightseeing and just start talking to strangers and trying out new things in an unfamiliar culture. We talk about how we influenced each other in our later travels to the Sinai and Jerusalem and how sometimes the best plan for a place is not really knowing what you're going to do there or where you're going to go next. You know, I still remember the bag I carried on that trip because it's literally the same bag I'm wearing on the cover of my book Vagabonding. That bag was probably too big for that trip, all things considered, and if I had to do it all over again, I'd probably would have taken something designed more specifically for long-term travel, something like the set-out pack by Tortuga, which sponsors this podcast. To check out a selection of Tortuga bags, go to rolfpotts.com Tortuga and see a selection of their travel packs. And if you see something you like, that rolfpotts.com Tortuga address will automatically qualify you for 10% off the price of your order at checkout. You know, when I left Egypt that year, I went by freighter ship, which was awesome and will probably make for some other future retrospective episode of Deviate. But freighter ships aside, the best way to plan around the world or multi-stop vagabonding itinerary is to use the tools and support offered by Airtrex, which also sponsors this podcast. Go to Airtrex.com to start dreaming about your long-term post-pandemic international travel journey. All right, here's my old friend Dan Neely and I talking about our experience in what, by our own reckoning, is the best travel hostel in the world. Well, Dan, you know, I have hung out with you in places like France and Sweden and New Zealand, where you live now. We were actually roommates for a short and very eventful time in the city of New Orleans many years ago. Uh, we took what was one of my favorite road trips across the USA slightly before you went into the Peace Corps about 20 years ago. But where did you and I first meet? <laughs> uh, we first met in the Sultan Hotel in Cairo in early 2000, I believe. We did. We did. It was it was a little over 20 years ago after, at the time that we're recording this, which is funny because it feels, you know, I still sort of see you as this smart-ass 25-year-old, <laughs> and, and I was 29 years old. Um, and the Sultan Hotel was called a hotel, but it was really more of a hostel. Um, like, what do you remember of how, how the layout was? Oh, man. Um, I remember, God, I, you know, I don't even remember how I ended up there, but 
I remember it was it was a, it was an old hotel, um, probably pretty glorious in its time. I remember a really beautiful Art Nouveau staircase. That's really clear in my mind. Um, but I remember it also being pretty dark and dingy. So I remember we were up four or five stories, um, and uh, then getting up there. You know, there's a small reception desk, and then kind of being ushered into the back where there was just uh, at least where I managed to sleep in the cheap seats. It was just a bunch of old uh, beds kind of piled in next to each other like a like an old medical ward. That's that's those are my that's probably my memory of of the room I stayed in with oh, gosh ten other people. Yeah, no, it was like a makeshift hostel, and I don't even remember if there were private rooms. Maybe there was, no. but I just wasn't a private room type of guy. Um, but they were they were it was less than three dollars a bed. Uh, it was it was called the Sultan Hotel, but it was really a hostel, and there was a kitchen. And then the best part of that place, and the place why it's one of my favorite places ever, um, was the lobby where everybody would hang out in the lobby. And yeah. And and sort of nobody could get to their room unless they went through the lobby. So it was this super social area. And and that's that I, that's one of my other vivid memories, because um, as soon as I walked in, you were sitting there, and you go, "Oh, you must be American because you have a Gregory backpack." Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember that really clearly. Yeah, it's funny. I had been there for a while, and. Um, and uh, then you came and went. There was a lot of coming and going. I stayed there like six different times, coming and going out of Cairo. And I have a ton of friends. Uh, you, you're probably the, the person I see the most of the, all the people I met at that place. But I have like – this was 20 years ago. I have like six different friends that I'm still Facebook friends with and could message at any moment from that place. Um, and I, and I, I'm really fond of Egypt, and we'll talk about that in a little – in a second here. Um First, I'm going to read this essay that I wrote about the place years ago. It was it was in my book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There. And the essay is sort of about being intimidated by the pyramids and sort of avoiding going to the pyramids for fear of being disappointed by them. But it's really a celebration of hostels, I think, and the, the kind of friends you meet there, which, you know, includes you, which I've, you know, I Skyped you like a month ago for no particular reason. We're still friends after all these years, thanks to this hostel. Okay, that in mind, I'm going to read my old essay about that hostel. It's called Backpacker's Ball at the Sultan Hotel. I wrote it 20 years ago, and I feel like it still captures why hostels like this are so special and so memorable. Here goes. Backpacker's Ball at the Sultan Hotel, an essay by Rolf Potts. My first instinct upon arriving in Cairo is to fear the pyramids. This is not some fear of existential belittlement in the presence of the ancient megaliths, nor do I fear some presumed pharaonic curse. Rather, I feel let down. I fear I won't see the grand old monuments with the proper degree of awe or historical perspective. I fear that in the process of comparing reputation with reality, I'll be disappointed. I fear that the pyramids, which have been perused, praised, and plundered for thousands of years now, will prove to be an experience little more than a static tourist cartoon devoid of genuine inspiration or beauty. The most irritating part of this pyramid phobia is that I will ultimately be forced to confront it. After all, going to Cairo without seeing the pyramids is kind of like a marriage without consummation. You can try it, but the obsession with what you're missing out on will ultimately get the best of you. I can procrastinate, however, and that's what I've resolved to do. Taking a taxi from the Cairo airport to Arabi Square at midday, I unsling my pack at a park bench, do a bit of reading, and let the city soak in before I look for a place to stay. My literary companion in Cairo is Gustave Flaubert, who, before penning Madame Bovary, traveled to Egypt in 1849 and recorded his impressions in a series of letters to his friends. Like me, the 28-year-old Flaubert was indecisive in his opinion about the ancient pharaonic ruins. At times he regarded the old tombs and temples with humble awe, but at other times he expressed disappointment at the realities of his tourist itinerary. The Egyptian temples bore me profoundly, he wrote home at one point. Oh, necessity, to do what you're supposed to do, to be always according to the circumstances and despite the aversion of the moment, what a young man or a tourist or an artist is supposed to be. In keeping with the age-old traveler's instinct to seek on the road what one enjoys at home, Flaubert eased his tourist angst in Egypt by frequenting the local whorehouses. 
Not only did this activity provide his journal with some memorable passages, example, coo with little Sophie, she is very corrupt and writhing, extremely voluptuous, I stain the divan, but it also gave him the impetus to stray from his luxury hotels and riverboats into the seedier parts of town. Here Flaubert found the depraved exoticism he'd hoped for. There is one new element which I hadn't expected to see and which is tremendous here, he wrote to a friend shortly after arriving in Cairo, and that is the grotesque. All the old comic business of the cudgeled slave, of the coarse trafficker in women, the thieving merchant, all is very fresh hair, very genuine and charming. In the streets, in the houses, on any and all occasions, there is a merry proliferation of beatings left and right. Sitting on my bench, paging through Flaubert's memoirs, I take in the sights of Orabi Square. Around me, a brown smog hangs low over the buildings as Egyptians in jeans, dresses, or jalaba robes walk around the sidewalks. Children wrestle with each other at the curbside, and round-faced Berber women sell tissues on the corner. Colored pyramids of fresh fruit stretch back into alleyways, and purple slabs of meat swing in the doorways. Teenage boys bicycle through the crowds with crates of bread balanced on their head. Old men wearing checkered keffiyeh scarves stop up to ask me where I'm from. Idle businessmen haunt the tea houses to smoke their shisha pipes and play dominoes. Out on the street, stalled taxis blast their horns uselessly. From what I can see, Cairo is noisy, crowded, chaotic, and friendly, but by no means grotesque in Flaubert's sense of the word. If first impressions mean anything, I would have to conclude that this city has tamed a bit in the past 150 years, but then I've only been here for an hour. When Flaubert visited Cairo, he passed his days at the Hotel du Nil, a comfortable and lavish place where, quote, desert robes brush up against all kinds of things that civilization sends here as supposedly the last word in Parisianism, end quote. There he was waited upon at dinner by a team of silk-jacketed Nubians, one of whom had the sole assignment of waving away flies with a feather duster. Since my means are considerably humbler than those of 19th century French aristocracy, I shop around for accommodation among the grotty backpacker dives adjacent to Arabi Square. I eventually settle on a place called the Sultan Hotel, which charges eight Egyptian pounds, about $2.35, for a bed in a dorm room. I'm attracted to the place not because of its facilities, the showers are leaky, the halls are stained, and the elevator dusty and disused, but because of its lobby, which is the epitome of jolly international chaos. There, under kitschy day-glow wall paintings of pharaonic gods and camels, street hustlers and fruit vendors from the alley have come in to practice their English with a motley mix of Western travelers who, not to be outdone, are throwing out phrases of Arabic. Half-understood insults and ironic declarations of love converge into a disorienting swirl of fractured English and pidgin Arabic. A Swiss teenager, draped in a red-checkered keffiyeh, packs honey tobacco into a shisha pipe in the middle of a room. Arabic pop music crackles from a boombox at the reception desk. A black-and-white 1950s Egyptian musical shimmers ignored on a TV in the corner. I soon discover that the de facto ringleader amid this afternoon madness is Tom Bourbon, a wild-haired aspiring playwright from Toledo, Ohio, who's been slumming at the Sultan ever since he arrived in Egypt two months ago. At six foot eight, with steel-rimmed spectacles and a patchy beard, Tom looks like an ebullient cross between Gustav Mahler and former L.A. Laker Kurt Rambis. By the time I've moved into my room, showered, and put on fresh clothes, Tom has persuaded a dozen or so fellow travelers to crash a local performance of Rossini's Il Signor Bruschino. Inspired, a gaggle of Belgian, Canadian, German, and Japanese travelers fuss their hair, rummage through backpacks for clean clothes, and otherwise try to make themselves presentable enough to pass the standards of the Cairo opera. Figuring this kind of experience is simply too charming to pass up, I tag along. As we walk to the opera house, I meet a few of my new companions. Kathleen, a German teen who's been working as a camel wrangler at a kibbutz in Israel. Don, a 45-year-old Canadian who'd planned to motorcycle around the world but was forced to improvise when he wrecked his bike before he got out of Canada. Steffi, a willowy Belgian whose parents first met at a Rossini opera. And Stu, a recent Harvard grad who seems inordinately proud of his high school wrestling career. By the time we settle into our seats at the Al Gamoria Theater, most of us clutching $1.50 student tickets, we've received more than a few baleful stares from the high-class Egyptians and European expatriates in the audience. 
No doubt in our hiking boots, kafias, assorted facial piercings, rumpled t-shirts, and stained khakis, we look like the boorish epitome of youthful irreverence. Fortunately, the opera, which Rossini wrote for Venice Carnival season at age 21, is as youthful and irreverent as any of the teens or post-teens in our group. A credulous slapstick tale of romance and mistaken identity, Il Signor Bruschino is as much a blueprint for the 1980s sitcom Three's Company as it is a precursor to William Tell. We leave the opera in high spirits and retire to the Sultan Hotel lobby for beer, whiskey, and half-baked post-curtain analysis. Inspired by our brief taste of Cairo high culture, Tom disappears into his dorm room and returns with some of the duty-free liquor he says he's been hoarding in the hopes of, and he says this with a straight face, starting a speakeasy. Mixing slugs of Four Roses bourbon with Coke, he fills me in on the idiosyncrasies of the Sultan Hotel. We always have a pretty interesting crowd here, he tells me, especially in the six-pound, that's $1.75 rooms up on the third floor, up there, you're never really sure why or how long people are going to stay. Just last week, we had a trans woman from France. Nice long legs, a full collection of sequin miniskirts, and a five o'clock shadow. She didn't last long. On the other hand, we have a Sudanese Christian up there who first checked in a year and a half ago. She tells people she's an opera singer. Why are you staying here, I ask. Lots of reasons, Tom says, absently pulling at his beard with his long fingers. Right now, I'm learning Arabic. Plus, I'm trying to pull some strings and get an Egyptian passport. Why would you want an Egyptian passport? Tom looks at me as if the answer should be obvious. So I can go to Iraq, he says. As the whiskey makes its way around the room, people start telling travel stories, all of them outrageous, most of them third-hand. The Norwegian guys who sold a bottle of Chivas Regal for $1,000 in Saudi Arabia. The British teen who bought a camel in Dara, Egypt and supposedly rode it to the Sinai the Japanese trekking group who lost their jungle guide to a landmine in Laos, Hassan, the sultan's charismatic night clerk, puts some Arabic pop tunes into the boombox, and the Swiss kid unwraps his honey tobacco and primes some more shisha coals on the kitchen stove. As the lobby conversations reach a boozy crescendo, I wonder to myself whether Flaubert would have felt at home here. On one hand, the flophouse atmosphere, $2.35 beds and bad plumbing, combined with our middle-class goofiness, might have caused the patrician French novelist to sniff with disdain. On the other hand, this far-flung international cast, with its freewheeling late-night discourse, harkens back to social rituals that were much more common in Flaubert's day. Indeed, the scene here in the Sultan lobby is, in its own way, reminiscent less of commodified 21st-century electronic culture than it is of ritualized 19th-century parlor culture. As the night wears on, Tom breaks out a few more choice bottles from his speakeasy stash. The conversation becomes less coherent and our post-opera soiree dwindles down to a handful of sleepy-eyed stalwarts. On the TV in the corner, an Egyptian man in a cardigan sweater and black horn-rimmed glasses sings a ten-minute love song to a corpulent woman in a headscarf. My second day in Cairo begins at two in the afternoon, which is when I wake up. Encouraged by the fact that it's far too late to try and see the pyramids, I wander down to the Sultan lobby in search of diversion. There I find the towering Tom, who tells me he plans to lead an excursion to the Palmyra Belly Dancing Club later in the evening. Thrilled by the excursion's exotic implications, I tell him to count me in. When Flaubert visited Egypt 150 years ago, he took a particular interest in belly dancing. In all likelihood, this had more to do with the fact that the dancers doubled as prostitutes than with the dancing itself. In Esna, Flaubert saw the performance of a dancer called Kuchuk Hanem, who performed the bee, a striptease reputedly so erotic the musicians had to be blindfolded. Flaubert's description of his extracurricular activities with Hanem, quote, The effect of her necklace between my teeth, her cunt-like rolls of velvet as she made me come, I felt like a tiger, end quote seemed to underscore Europe's erotic obsession with what was known as, quote, the Orient at the time. However, erotic stereotypes in Egypt long predate Flaubert, as even Herodotus's description of the Nile Valley in the 5th century BC is full of sexual footnotes. When describing Egyptian customs, for instance, Herodotus noted a spring festival wherein women carried puppets with huge hinged penises that were pulled up and down by strings. There is some sort of religious significance to the size of the genitals, Herodotus noted dryly, and the fact that they are the only part of the puppet's body which is made to move. 
As it turns out, belly dancing performances in Cairo don't start until after midnight, so I have a full evening to anticipate the sensual delights that await. I ultimately discover, however, that anticipation doesn't always mesh with reality. The best belly dancing in Egypt, it is said, costs $50 a show and can be found at five-star hotels like the Meridian Lekeo or the Parisienne. At the Palmyra Club, which is within walking distance of the Sultan Hotel, admission is about $1.50. The performance value, I suspect, is calibrated accordingly. When our disheveled traveler posse arrives from the Sultan to take a table at the back of the Palmyra, a man in a jalaba and two women in hijab are happily shaking their moneymakers out on the dance floor. At first, I think this is a prelude to some sort of Islamic-themed striptease until I realize that these people are just overzealous customers. The real dancer, a big-haired, large-breasted girl in a faux snakeskin jumpsuit, is at the back of the stage idly joking with the accordion player. As my eyes get used to the darkness, I take in the surroundings. The club features tall ceilings and textured rock walls accessorized with red curtains. If lighting were improved and the velvety curtains replaced with, say, country knickknacks, this place could easily pass for a family restaurant in Minnetonka, Minnesota. The crowd, however, is decidedly non-Middle America. Bedouins in red checkered keffiyehs and long gowns weigh five pound notes, each about $1.45 at the edge of the dance floor. Egyptian office stiffs with wrinkled neckties jump up from their tables to clap along with the music. Fat men with thin mustaches sit alone in corners, sweat stains growing out from their armpits. The band looks straight out of a David Lynch movie, the melancholy lute player who blinks and stares at the floor as he strums, the grinning leather-faced bongo drummer who wears brown pants over white patent leather shoes, the keyboardist who stops playing in the middle of a song to light a cigarette, the music is rhythmic, dissonant, and deafening. Eventually, the girl in the snakeskin jumpsuit starts to dance again, humming to the music into a cordless mic. After 30 minutes of this, she yields the stage to a dull-eyed blonde with feathered hair and a sequined evening gown. This new dancer is so amorphously plump that her rear end seems to start just below her neck. As she dances, the slightest wiggle sends her sequined extremities into a gelatinous fury of motion. For those of us at the Sultan table, the effect is mesmerizing and somewhat disturbing. The Egyptian men, however, go nuts, shouting along to the music and periodically jumping onto the stage to bust a few dance moves and shower the blonde with one-pound bills. By 3 a.m., we can take no more of this, so we return to the Sultan Hotel lobby to discuss the merits of the performance. Since Tom's duty-free booze stash was nearly depleted the previous night, Don the Canadian brings out a bottle of Egyptian whiskey— a Johnny Walker Black Label knockoff called, literally, Johnny Wadi Black Table. We sip the medicinal-tasting Egyptian spirit and grimace as we debate the dubious erotic merits of the belly-dancing performance. We've nearly exhausted this topic when a previously taciturn Canadian girl suddenly begins to instruct everyone on her preferred methods of attaining orgasm. All conversation pauses momentarily, and before long, everyone is merrily debating the merits and challenges of clitoral versus vaginal stimulation. The more we delve into this topic, however, the more orgasm girl seems disappointed. Her purpose, it seems, was not to initiate an objective debate about the physiology of erotic climax, but to create a personal mystique, to pique any romantic attentions that might have been dulled by the belly dancing fiasco. Unfortunately for would-be Cleopatra's and Mark Antony's, the physical realities of the Sultan Hotel pretty much preclude amorous intrigue. Within the entire complex, which spans three floors of a run-down building in downtown Cairo, there is not a single place where one can fornicate with any sense of dignity. The kitchen and the lobby are always otherwise in use, the roof is home to a small community of Egyptian squatters, and the back stairwells are swamped in years of accumulated garbage and grime. Coitus is technically possible for the well-coordinated in the cramped shower-slash-toilet stalls, but there is the ever-present danger of slipping on soap scum or impaling oneself on the unspeakably soiled copper bidet hoses that curve out from the toilet bowls. This leaves only the dorm rooms themselves, which, in addition to being officially gender-segregated, are crowded enough to discourage sexual dalliance. Thus, whereas cleaner and roomier backpacker dives on the travel trail can resonate with romantic maneuverings in the boozy wee hours, the sexual currents at the Sultan are, for the most part, friendly, theoretical, and platonic. 
After a few more drinks and some pulls on the shisha pipe, the sex chit-chat gives way to talk of Sudanese visas and Israeli border stamps, of Arabic history and where to score weed. Perhaps chagrined at losing her spotlight, Orgasm Girl goes to bed early. Flaubert, no doubt, would have shared her irritation. By my fourth day in Cairo, avoiding the pyramids has taken on a comfortable sort of rhythm. I've fallen into the indolent habit of waking up past noon, stumbling down to the market for oranges and falafel, then wandering the city for afternoon sightseeing. The fewer goals I set for this activity, the more Cairo seems to bloom out from its strange corners. My favorite activity is to buy a ticket for the metro, get off at random, walk until I'm lost, then ask directions back to the station. In this manner, I've collected sights like souvenirs, men in alleyways building lattices, baking bread, butchering chickens, a herd of goats toddling through a public plaza, Berbers in donkey carts stuck in traffic jams. I've seen the incense man swing his censer through a fruit market collecting 10 piaster tips. I've seen women in full ninja-style burqa dive onto speeding buses. I've seen pious Muslim men selling vegetables, their foreheads black with welts from praying to Mecca. I have seen garbage choking the rooftops and raw sewage flowing through the medieval gate of Islamic Cairo. The call of the muezzin from the mosques, at first a strange haunting cry, has now blended into the music of my day. Gustave Flaubert was equally impressed by the random mundane in Cairo. I am scarcely over the initial bedazzlement, he wrote. It's like being hurled while still asleep into the midst of a Beethoven symphony, with the brasses at their most ear-splitting, the basses rumbling, the flutes sighing away. Each detail reaches out to grab you, it pinches you, and the more you concentrate on it, the less you grasp the whole. It is such a bewildering chaos of colors that your poor imagination is dazzled as though by continuous fireworks, as you go about staring at minarets thick with white storks, at tired slaves stretched out in the sun on house terraces, at the patterns of sycamore branches against walls, with camel bells ringing in your ears and great herds of black goats bleeding in the streets amidst the horses and the donkeys and the peddlers. As with Flaubert, these details captivate my imagination. I go for hours at a time without feeling the slightest twinge of pyramid anxiety. Today I return from my afternoon wanderings to find out what kind of absurdity towering Tom Bourbon has cooked up for the evening. Tom suggests that in a culinary attempt to go native, we visit the market, find a live animal, and cook it for dinner. Last week, apparently, he and a few other members of Team Sultan failed to cook a pigeon. We could never find any meat on it, he explains ruefully. So tonight he wants to try and boil a rabbit or two. About a half a dozen Sultanites are up for this, but the number quickly dwindles the moment the market vendor starts pulling bunnies out of the split reed cages and sizing them up for us. By the time our two rabbits' throats have been slit and the butchers begun to peel off the fur, Tom and I are the only takers left. Undaunted, Tom buys a sack of vegetables and we go upstairs to start in on the rabbit stew. This activity proves to be an interesting study in the psychology of eating meat. After we slowly boil the rabbit along with vegetables and aromatic spices for two hours, half a dozen new Sultanites hungrily volunteer to join us for dinner. Those who saw the rabbits when they are alive, on the other hand, keep a grim distance from the kitchen. We decide to cap off rabbit night by walking down Talat Hobbs Street to catch an Egyptian movie at the Metro Cinema. None of us is good enough at Arabic to fully understand the dialogue, but that's half the reason for going. The task of trying to discern the plot will add a bit of mystery and challenge to the experience. Tonight, the Metro is showing a film called Hello, America, a comedy about an Egyptian man who travels to New York in search of the American dream. In its portrayal of American stereotypes alone, Hello, America provides a fascinating example of Egyptian filmmaking. From the moment the movie starts, however, I notice a strange detail. Almost all of the American-looking characters, gang members, bodyguards, cops, and homosexuals alike look a bit unkempt and vaguely emaciated. Tom eventually explains this detail. Since filmworking Cairo pays a pittance, the only foreigners consistently willing to work as extras are backpackers. Over the course of the movie, Tom spots three minor characters, a robber, a cross-dresser, and a homeless person who are portrayed by current or former occupants of the Sultan Hotel. What the film lacks in authenticity and artistic value, it makes up for in quirky moments of satire. When the main character joins what he thinks is a freedom march, for instance, it turns out to be a gay pride rally. When he shows affection for his young American nephew, he's accused of being a pedophile. 
When he relaxes in his room with a late day shisha pipe, the fire marshal kicks in the door and hoses him down. There are a few set pieces that take digs at Egyptians. For example, when the main character is stopped at the airport for suspicious-looking luggage, he declares, it's okay, I'm an Arab, and the other passengers flee screaming. But for the most part, the movie is a firm reinforcement of traditional Egyptian values. Relationships take precedent over rules, individualism is suspect, and family is more important than money. As I return to the Sultan and drift off to sleep that night, I realize with a twinge of trepidation that I've run out of original legitimate reasons to avoid the pyramids. Cowing to the inevitable, I arranged a trip to the pyramids on the morning of my fifth day in Cairo. When Flaubert went to see the pyramids of Giza and Saqqara, he traveled by horseback and slept in the desert. These days, Cairo's urban sprawl has turned these sites into virtual suburbs. Hoping to catch all the sights in one efficient trip, I hire Hussein, the Sultan Hotel night clerk, to drive me around for the day. Steffi the Belgian, her friend Nella, and a Japanese fellow named Yoshido join me. Tom, who has already been to the Egyptian pyramids three times, elects to stay in Cairo. We strike out from the Sultan early in the morning. Hussein's driving style is a blend of good intentions and bad technique. We sputter through stop-start Cairo traffic in second gear. At one point, when I ask Hussein the name of a towering mosque, a chubby Egyptian adolescent goes bouncing off the front fender. Fortunately, Cairo traffic is generally slow enough to preclude physical injury in this type of situation. The kid flamboyantly curses Hussein, but otherwise seems unharmed. I make a point of not asking any more questions while Hussein is driving. Our first pharaonic destination is Saqqara, which lies south of Cairo's sprawl. As we leave the Nile Valley, a pale tan desert drops out from beyond the palms and canals. Mud brick houses crumble in the sun. A sign near the monument admission booth reads, Good life, immortality, and happiness can be found in Egypt. At Saqqara, tombs and pyramids of Teti exude a quiet, plundered grandeur. As I walk through the dusty chambers and corridors, I try to imagine these places as they might have been in their original splendor, but my brief reveries of ancient Egypt keep getting pushed aside by remembered images of Luxor Casino in Las Vegas. This proves to be a stubbornly persistent association, so eventually I just give in and allow my mind to wander, blending personal memories and spontaneous feelings with historical speculation. At Zoser's Step Pyramid, my thoughts are interrupted by a fresh carving in the limestone near the bottom. Edward, 1-1-2000, it reads, and beneath that, fuck you. Such thoughtless defacement of the ancient here in Egypt is certainly nothing new. When Flaubert explored the Giza pyramids, he expressed shock at all the recent graffiti. One is irritated by the number of imbeciles' names written everywhere, he wrote. On the top of the Great Pyramid, there is the name of a certain Buffar, a wallpaper manufacturer in black letters, and an English fan of Jenny Lynn's has written her name there, and there's also a pair representing Louis Philippe. I return to the car and tell Hussein about the scrawl on Zoser's pyramid, but he doesn't seem all that shocked. As I've seen in so many other countries, the flagship phrase of English profanity doesn't resonate much with Egyptians. As with Nike or McDonald's, perhaps fuck you has simply become another Western trademark, a standardized mantra that tough guys say in American movies. You know, I say to Hussein, I think someone should build a huge limestone monument that says fuck you just so people will have to think of something different to carve on it. Hussein nods over at the pyramids of Zoser and Userkef. Maybe that's what they mean already. How's that, I say. The pyramids, he says. Maybe they're Egyptian for fuck you. Hussein grins big to show that he's joking, but for a moment I see the pyramids in an unexpected and brilliant new light. After a stop at Dashur, we finish our day at Giza. There I discover all the tourist madness I'd originally hoped to avoid, but now it seems novel in its own weird way. As I walk up to the ticket booth, swarms of pasty-faced Scandinavians pour out from pink tour bustles and jostle me on the walkway. Touts bully me with offers of camel rides or painted papyrus, a demoralizingly long line stretches out from the Pyramid of Cheops. Cairo skyscrapers tower in the distance. In front of the Sphinx, a ragged band of German hippies bangs on drums and bows in prayer. In front of the adjacent Pizza Hut, Mexican backpackers pose for photos. For some reason, this all seems perfect. I pay my ticket and see what I'm supposed to see. You asked me whether Egypt is up to what I'd imagined it to be, Flaubert wrote to his mother after having been in Cairo for five weeks. 
Yes, it is. And more than that, it extends far beyond the narrow idea I had of it. I have found clearly delineated everything that was hazy in my mind. Facts have taken the place of suppositions, and so excellently so that it is often as though I was suddenly coming upon old forgotten dreams. At sunset, black uniformed guards chase us out of the pyramid complex, and Steffi, Nella, Yoshita, and I pile into Hussein's car and drive back into the living heart of Cairo. All right, that was my essay, Backpacker's Ball at the Sultan Hotel. The version that appears in my book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There, actually has endnotes that explain why, for example, it was written in the present tense, and how it was my attempt to celebrate backpacker culture in a way that went beyond the cliches that characterized the way outlets like Time Magazine tended to write about young backpackers. I also admit that in real life I wasn't literally reading Gustave Flaubert's travel letters after one hour in Cairo that I actually discovered them later during my visit and used his 150-year-old experience to frame my own. I also wanted to use the essay to illustrate the subtle joy of travel hostels where a Melbourne construction worker could hang out with the Pennsylvania Ivy Leaguer and an Egyptian fruit vendor in the spirit of mutual respect. All 20 of the essays I have in my book Marco Polo Didn't Go There have these endnotes, which serves as a kind of commentary track to the task of writing travel essays, I invite you to check out that book, which is available through online stores like Amazon, but for now I wanted to get back to my conversation with my friend Dan Neely, who I met at the Sultan Hotel in Cairo. Here's the two of us celebrating the joys of backpacker travel and everything that is engaging and amazing about hostels. All right, so that was my that was my essay, Backer, Backer's Ball at the Sultan Hotel. And one funny thing about that essay, Dan, is that I mention a lot of very colorful characters in that, including... Uh, Tom Bourbon, who I'm still friends with, and and people like Stu the Wrestler and an Orgasm Girl, who I am not necessarily in touch with anymore. <laughs> but some of my closest friends include uh, my buddy Paul and you, who didn't even make it into the essay. So the, the funny thing about this is that this hostel was such a resource, a great resource of people who became friends or just became curious people I could write about. It was so interesting that I didn't even mention you. There was some... There was some pretty absurd evenings going on there with some very colorful people. And I, I probably just wasn't that colorful in my mid twenties. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you and I bonded a little bit more, uh, in, in the Sinai and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, I want to talk about our further travels cause it was a sort of a special time of travel for us. Um, but let's talk about the Sultan hotel itself. Um, and just this strange place. Do you remember those those weird, like the the one dollar and thirty five cent rooms that were upstairs, where like the opera singer and the and the transgendered woman were? Yeah, you know, I just I remember them all being uh, pretty. Cheap. <laughs> I remember them all being pretty cheap. Yeah. Um, so I and, and looking back on it, I have no idea where I was, but I I do remember. I don't remember those people in my room, but um, I do remember being really surprised how cheap the rooms were. Um, and equally how many people they were packing into such small rooms of which I was, of which I was sharing uh, a bed with, with uh, a number of people around me. It was, it was, it was close quarters. Yeah. And you know, I, I came and went through Egypt for about four months that year. And I think towards the end of my sojourn, most everybody had left. Like the, the wild and crazy scene that we experienced was no longer there. And it just seemed like a half-empty, dumpy hostel, you know. <laughs> so, so, so I, I think sometimes it's it's not even the facility. Sometimes it's just it's just the coalescence of the travelers that are there at the time. Have you been to other hostels that were that were nearly as cool as the as the Sultan? Oh gosh, looking back on it, I, I mean, I generally I don't remember any other place around the world that had the level of absurdity. Yeah, the salt did, and I'm, and you know, it's so great that you wrote a story about it because, yeah, there was just there was just a high level of absurdity going around <laughs> going around uh, that 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 hotel slash hostel. Yeah, do you do you remember Johnny Waddy Black Table uh, Liquor? Totally remember Johnny Waddy, and I, and I still use Johnny Waddy anytime I meet an Egyptian. That's my icebreaker. <laughs> okay, is, is, is to uh, bring up a little Johnny Waddy uh, fine fine tastings. Yeah, totally remember that. And do they do do Egyptians admit to to remembering Johnny Wadi? Some some do. Some uh, look at me quite you know blank stares. Um, probably because you know maybe they're not big alcohol drinkers. Fair enough. 
Uh, but certainly some have, have smiled and, and laughed about it. Yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely a thing in and around uh, Egypt or Cairo, at least. Yeah, it, it's funny. And then, of course, uh, Tom Bourbon was trying to run a speakeasy, and so we actually had legitimately good duty-free booze there a fair amount. And I just wonder if, if, if our experience was maybe a little bit more boozy than your average Egyptian experience is. You know, it's a, Even back then, it was a fairly conservative Islamic country, but um, we were very comfortable in the booze department in the Sultan Hotel. Yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember it flowed quite fluid. And that was, that was another memory I have now that you mentioned that is is as soon as I came in and I, I don't you probably remember this better first whatever there must have been some sort of process that as soon as you were in the country you're allowed to purchase some amount of liquor yeah you you're given like with your stamp you were given you're allowed to, to to buy like twenty dollars worth of liquor something like okay. that <laughs> so, so I remember walking into the hotel and they and they're like how long have you been in the country and that was Tom Bourbon. Right. How long have you been in the country? And I hadn't been in the hotel for, you know, but a, a few minutes. And and I remember, you know, like, cool, we're going out tonight. You're on, you're on uh, this this booze mission this evening because of whatever stamp, you know, however that worked. Yeah, that's funny. You know, I think whoever invented that that rule that you know, <clears throat> Egyptians were very restricted on what kind of alcohol they could buy, um, but they made a rule that travelers could buy duty-free booze coming in. And I don't think they realized that it would create this little speakeasy scene in a super cheap hostel by a Robbie Square <laughs> run, run by a six-foot-eight guy from Ohio. <laughs> but I, I, I honestly think that that is what brought everybody together. That and the fact that everybody had to go through the lobby to get to their rooms and that the rooms were sort of dumpy and there was no real reason to hang out in the rooms. So you're either, you're either out in the city or you were in the lobby or you were asleep. And then Tom Bourbon had all this really fancy booze because he was trying to start this speakeasy. And so we were just always hanging out in the lobby. And one thing that is remarkable about my essay is just how late we got to bed every night. I, I, I recall yeah. that – and I, this is part of traveling, I guess, when you're, when, you're, when you're young. But do you remember, like, waking up in, in the early afternoon type thing? Yeah, totally. And that's – and just hanging out in the madness throughout the evening. And, and you, you, re, you reference – the the boiling a, or catching a rabbit and boiling the rabbit in the back and like I I clearly remember staying up quite late and watching that massacre take place just thinking what on earth am I watching all these amateurs who have no idea what they're doing trying to kill and or trying to skin a rabbit and 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 boil a rabbit and and just just like what's going on in this place well, that, that was the funny thing about the Sultan Hotel is that basically we were trying to be Egyptians. Like I think you, a, an Egyptian cook or a housewife or a guy who cooks for his family, they're going to know how to skin a rabbit because it's not that unusual. But we were completely flummoxed, but we were going to, by golly, we were going to figure it out, you know. There were some guys in the hostel. I mean, there was, there was a weird cast of characters, and I didn't mention them all in the essay, but there was a guy from Finland who everybody called Huck because they called him Huck the Finn, you know, Huck Finn. Um, <laughs> And and some of them started a contest where they went out to the, the market and they tried they, each of them had like ten dollars worth of Egyptian pounds and, and the contest to see was to see how much you could buy with, with like ten dollars worth of Egyptian pounds. It maybe even wasn't even ten dollars worth of Egyptian pound because the, our rooms cost us less than three dollars a night. But so they would basically go and just buy broken things and large things in the market. That the amazing thing about this is that nobody after everybody had seen you know the Egyptian museum and the pyramids, they didn't have really have a specific thing to do. So we were just sort of hanging out and practicing Arabic and meeting people in the neighborhood and maybe playing backgammon and smoking shisha pipes out down in cafes, and then also doing these ridiculous things like trying to cook a rabbit. That in many respects sums up what traveling is is about, right? Is, is you, yeah, you're going to go see these pyramids, but then you get to experience all of these other things that are taking place in the culture. If you, if you stick your neck out a little bit and, and kind of push past the obvious tourist hotspots and you start to get a feel for what's going on. And that's, you know, that's one of the best parts about traveling. It really is. And I think it's, it's something that a lot of people who either don't have a lot of time or trying to stri- too strictly to, to stick to their list of things to do, don't end up doing ridiculous, but somehow edifying things like trying to cook a rabbit because in addition to being very entertaining, I think the rabbit itself wasn't that good tasting. I don't really remember the rabbit being that delicious. Um, but 
I do recall that you met a guy who became our friend who was an urban planner from San Diego, our friend Paul. And when you joined the Peace Corps less than a year later, you sort of convinced them you were an urban planner based on things he told you in the, in the hostel. Is that, is that true or have I been telling your story inaccurately all these years? Uh, there, there are certainly elements of that that are definitely true. You know, you hang out with somebody, you, you know, we, we became friends with Paul and Paul's an urban planner. And, um, and I became quite fascinated by the, the concepts of how cities are built to look, walking around some, some big cities and looking, looking at them through his eyes. And, uh, yeah, when I applied to be a Peace Corps volunteer, they had this kind of, it wasn't a city planning job. It was urban development. Um, but I certainly drew on enough of Paul's uh, phrases and, and insights to uh, convince him to, to put me into that, into that field for Peace Corps and ended up, you know, that, that kind of shaped a little bit of the trajectory of, of my two years in Honduras for sure. Yeah. So in addition to like getting to know the Egyptians, like who worked there, like Hussein, who was hilarious. And then Hassan, who was actually trained as a lawyer. He ran the front desk. Great guy. Um, They were sort of an entree into the neighborhood. And then we went shopping in the markets nearby, and I remember the oranges were giant and really, really good. Like I think some of the best oranges I've ever had I had in Egypt. Do you remember those mm-hmm. markets? Totally, yeah. I, I remember. I, you know, those kind of things that stand out when you look back. Um, I remember the dates. Do you remember the dates? Just piled up like you know, they're literally their own little pyramids, and just you could get piles of dates for super cheap. Yeah, yeah. I was more of a citrus guy. I remember the dates because they looked good. Like they just they the presentation was fantastic, and they were super cheap, right? Like, do you remember yeah. any like like how cheap you could you could get a meal for in Cairo? Because I remember we went to we ate at this dish called koshery. Do you remember koshery? It's no. like it's like chickpeas and lentils. It's like this big mix of stuff. People people who are Egyptian ex, uh, experts might be rolling their eyes now because it's a it's a common dish. I don't remember exactly what's in it, but it's just very simple. Very hearty, sort of protein-based uh, based food, and it just—it's just pennies. Just like for seven cents, you can eat more food than you can ever choke down. Yeah, I—I I, I remember getting. What what I do remember is is I don't you know getting uh, the bump up in price, the significant bump up in price. So I would watch a local pay for something, and then I'd say I want that, and then I'd be I'd pull out the same amount of money, but it'd always be almost always be 500% more. Um, but the cheapest, I do remember the getting a really, the cheapest falafel I ever got was six cents. And I vividly remember that because the guy, it was the only time that I remember where <laughs> I paid what the local paid. Do you, don't, do you right. remember like just the significant bump ups that and it was just like non-negotiable? Yeah, and you know, Egyptians have been hosting tourists for 5,000 years or 2,000 years at least. And so I think that's just that's just an instinctive thing for them. Sure. But the funny sure. thing about, you know, you pay five times the local price for falafel and it's still a quarter, you know. Yeah, Egypt is really one of my favorite places because people were so friendly. I mean, there's there's parts of Egypt, you know, like around the museum and the pyramids were just they just see you as a tourist, and you, you just may as well have this giant tourist sign around your neck. But almost any other neighborhood in the city, including most of the neighborhoods around the Sultan Hotel, Egyptians are just, just gung-ho, outgoing, fr- super friendly people, and I had nothing but positive experiences. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. All, all throughout Egypt, I remember that. Just really, really wonderful, friendly people. And really outgoing, like really happy to have conversations. There were, there were days where I literally had nothing on my agenda and that was awesome. I don't know why I did it, but there were entire days where I just hung out, played backgammon, smoked shisha, <laughs> read some books, bought oranges from the market, and hung out with people from the Sultan Hotel, maybe learned a little uh, uh, Arabic. And it, they were just wonderful days, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and then in those, in those countries and parts of the world, you could, your, your, your total expenses for the days is $12. It doesn't necessarily have to be a backpacker thing, but anytime you're in a country and you're not really sure what you're going to do that day and you're sort of wandering around, that's sort of a travel sweet spot, I think. And as I get mm-hmm. older, I sort of have to remind myself that I can do that, you know, because literally when I look back on my notes from that time in Egypt, there were so many days when I just wasn't sure what I was doing, but I was having a great time being unsure what I was doing. You know, when I look back as a, as a general theme of hostels, 
just the awesome late night discussions on every topic in the world, especially traveling the world as an American, right? Because you mm. know everybody in the world seems to have an opinion about America for one way or another, and great discussions, awesome, such a growth, such a growth element. Um, when I look back on myself of how to navigate certain situations and and you know learning how America is perceived when you step outside of the America bubble, you know that's awesome. Absolutely. And, you know, even if you have like smart friends back home in the United States, because we're both Americans, we can use that as an example. Even if you have smart friends at home, just getting out of the bubble of those conversations and having conversations with with equally smart or at least very well traveled people from other countries that might be sort of close to the United States or people you might be having the conversation in English. But there are just so many ideas being batted around. And then people are just experimenting with their lives. Like Tom Bourbon wanted to go to Iraq. And this was back in the time when Iraq was uh, was a place Americans were not allowed to go. It was during Saddam Hussein era. And other people were trying to get to Sudan or to Libya. And they were just they were just being curious and being adventurous, and it was a lot of fun. Um, in my essay, I mentioned Orgasm Girl. Do you remember Orgasm Girl? Yeah, vaguely. I mean, I, I don't have, I don't think I was there for that discussion that you talk about in the book, but I do remember her. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've gotten a little bit of flack for that just because I call her Orgasm Girl. I probably should have given her another name because it seems a little bit sexist. But I just remember her as, as this person who was sort of trying to. I don't know, she was trying to dominate the conversation by turning it sex word. And it was so hilarious to me that she was trying to sort of create a mystique by talking about sex. But everybody was just being very empirical in talking about sex. And then they <laughs> talked about other stuff. And so to, to my readers, I, I wasn't trying to be sexist. I just thought it was, I thought it was absurd that she was using sort of this, this trump card that may have won her a mystique in some situations. But everybody was so earnest in that situation, they just sort of analyzed the sexual content that she was talking about, and then we went on to other topics in our conversation. I hope that sort of energy, not necessarily the orgasm-specific conversations, but just that, that, that energy that happened in hostels back then, and I'm sure it does happen, but I think people might be more tempted to stare at their screen now. Um, and so the idea of just like 16 people sitting in a room drinking together and just talking about... 20 different things at once. I hope that still happens. Gosh, you're right. You know, that's, that's such a, that's such a thing now that it wasn't 20 years ago. I, it'd be interesting to pop into a, uh, a bit of a grungy hostel and, and see how many people are, you know, chatting, debating ideas versus just looking at their phones. That's, that's, I hadn't really considered that, how that might've changed over the last couple of years. One thought that just occurred to me, and yeah. it's funny cause I never thought about this, but over the years traveling, you know, you meet a lot of Kiwis, right? Um, cause they're just, they're amazing travelers. And because I never had much money, I never was able to make it down to New Zealand, but I always, you know, was always hearing all oh, this, you know, New Zealand's amazing. And people that had gone there would always talk about how amazing. And it, and it's that, it's those conversations that planted the seed over time for me to go, I really, when I get older, I've really got to go check out New Zealand. And, you know, it's funny. It's, I, I, if it wasn't for those many, many repeated conversations of people around the world talking about how amazing New Zealand is, it's unlikely I would have tried to make a go of living here, which now, you know, this is my home and I've been in New Zealand for 13 years. But when we talk about how, you know, those, those cascading uh, effects of conversations over time, I can, I can very confidently say I ended up in New Zealand because of my travels and those conversations in hostels. Absolutely. And, you know, one funny thing that has been edited out of this podcast is that your daughter came in and was speaking to you in this Kiwi voice, right? So you have children who speak with Kiwi accents in part because uh, New Zealand came on your radar through experiences, if not necessarily directly from the Sultan Hotel, from places like the Sultan Hotel. It literally yeah, changed absolutely. your life. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, who who would have, I you know, if I would have told my 25-year-old self that I'd be... Uh, immigrate in New Zealand and have a family here like you know that that would my mind probably would have been blown at that stage but you know after lots of you know just after lots of experiences those kind of big moves across the world don't seem as daunting and I, you know that's just a great one of the just the great things to travel your mind just gets opened and opened you become more and more curious and then you end up in a place heavenly like this well it just throws open possibility because the odds the odds that somebody ends up in New Zealand specifically might be specific to you in certain ways. But just 
this is what I like to talk about, how education, not just educational, but just like how many ideas and opportunities can be generated by travel. Because yeah. it's not like you sat down and were converted like a missionary to the idea of New Zealand. But slowly, I think the idea accrued in your mind that New Zealand was a possibility. And at a certain point, you fell in love with a, a New Zealander and became a New Zealander yourself. And so there's many iterations of that. And it just, again, for my listeners... There's just so many ways that travel can change your life in ways that you have no idea before you leave home. You know, yeah. there's these resume things. Oh, I'll learn a language. I'll learn geography. I'll learn negotiation. And sure, that's worth putting on your resume. But who would have known that you'd be boiling a rabbit, learning about urban yes. planning, and suddenly your appointment in the Peace Corps is, is, is slightly changed by that? Or you're meeting Kiwis in this place and in other places around the Middle East, which is not even close to New Zealand. And then a, then a couple of decades later, you're married to a, to a New Zealander with two New Zealand accents speaking kids. Yeah, yeah. And that's, it's, that's it, right? It's just, you know, it's, it's, that, it's, that, it's that joke from a movie that we both love, Kicking and Screaming, right? One of the closing lines in the movie, how do you make God laugh? You make a plan and travel puts things on your radar and plant seeds and it just opens ideas and possibilities like, wow, I haven't even thought that's possible. And suddenly you, you meet other people that are doing these impossible things and it just it just kind of expands what you can do in this world and, and makes you know the radical not so daunting. Yeah, and I just think comparing it to university, you and I both finished university on our own terms, but just the things that you can get excited about as a traveler um, are just so much more intense than what you would find in a university where you're looking through a course catalog trying to figure out what might inspire you. And then, mm -hmm. then suddenly you're sitting in a hostel lobby talking to somebody and thinking about something you've never thought about before. And then you continue to think about it and, and turn it over in your head. And, and you know, even though this conversation is specific to the place we met, the Sultan Hotel, it just feels like there's so many places like that. That there's just there's literally dozens of places like the Sultan Hotel that can change your life in ways that you had no idea beforehand would. Yep. Yep. And you can't and you can't the best part is you can't I don't think you can Maybe you can nowadays. I don't think you go online and be like, where's the crazy, weird <laughs> hostel that, you know, I'm going to meet crazy, weird people that's going to change my life. It's just it's just the the it's chance. Right. It's just that 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 uh, putting your neck out there and, and trying different things and having conversations with people that you just don't know from different backgrounds. And, and suddenly things just start to open up and, and pop. And that's 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 certainly something I miss of travel during that period of my life that I don't as, get in the same way nowadays. It's, it's, it's funny because I, I was thinking about this a little bit earlier. The hostel equivalent for me nowadays is, is campgrounds, mm -hmm. right? Like, like we'll go to, we'll take the kid, you know, we go camping, we got a million and one camping spots in, in New Zealand and we'll take the kids camping and that same equivalent where the, all these kids uh, do the same thing. They, you know, these they're all strange, and suddenly, because they're kids playing in a stream, they all become friends. They'll run around like mad, and then the parents start hanging out because you'll say, "Hey, you know, you'll reach the campsite next to you. You, know, you want a beer, or whatever the case may be." And you, you kind of get that same experience, but in a really different format. Um, but it's it still opens up. We've made friendships that we still have in New Zealand um, just by putting yourself out there and offering a beer to somebody um, and becoming friends with with strangers. There's just so much to be said by becoming friends with strangers. Yeah, yeah, and just having an open system that allows for that. You know, I you said you don't exactly remember how you ended up at the Sultan. I do. It was weird. I, I was in the airport, and then this Australian guy came up to me, and he said, you want to split a cab? I said, sure. And the funny thing is, like, Australians are such great travelers. This guy was just a working-class Australian guy. He was about my age, but he worked construction or something. And then he was just so confident. Like, he was just such an experienced traveler. He, he didn't have a college education or anything, but he had this education of travel. And he, I actually didn't end up hanging out with him that much at the Sultan Hotel, but it was sort of his sensibility that led me to the Sultan Hotel. And so I think in the age of online travel reservations, even for hostels, I might not have ended up at the Sultan Hotel, um, which, which affected us both in, uh, in, in these amazing ways. And who knows, we may have ended up at different places, and those would have affected us in different ways too. But just the fact that we were mixing in with so many strangers at the Sultan Hotel was amazing. And I'm, I'm trying to remember, what did we bond over? Because it's funny you mentioned kicking and screaming. I've actually done a, a podcast episode about kicking and screaming. But I remember bonding about kicking and screaming with you. Uh, we bonded a little bit over music, like the Pixies. Uh, do you remember what yeah. else we talked about? It just—it's funny the random things that can bring that can make two guys bond in a place like Egypt. 
Oh, Walt Whitman actually is the thing I remember. We were, we we're both huge Walt Whitman fans. That's the thing I remember most because, you know, you don't, and God knows, you know, again, like, you, how, I don't remember having too many deep and meaningfuls about poetry on the road with people, but somehow you and I got into a really long, deep and meaningful over Walt Whitman um, under a palm tree in, was it Dahab? Dahab? It was, it was Dahab, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we, so we met up again and, you know, again, unplanned, like, oh, yeah, there's that, there's Rolf, you know, um, and, and for what, again, we had no agenda. So we're just kind of, I think, riding out the heat in the middle of the day and you and I are sitting under a palm tree talking about all kinds of stuff. And yeah, we bonded, we bonded over that. That's what I remember, mainly about Walt Whitman. Yeah, and it's funny that a couple of years later, Walt Whitman was just vagabonding, which I wrote a couple of years later was suffused with Walt Whitman. But uh, mm. for, for my listeners who don't know, Dahab is in the Sinai. So we hung out in Cairo, and, and you know we, were, we weren't really traveling together. We were traveling independent of each other, but we ended up hanging out in two different places. And, um, and I remember being in this place. Was it like the Camel Caravan or something? It, was another, it wasn't a hostel. It was just a little hotel in Dahab, which is sort of a backpacker town in the Sinai. And I hear this deep, resonant sort of Arizona voice outside, and it's like, that's Dan. And so I go out, and like I had like, like long grunge hair at the time. And then yeah, we, hung yeah. out, we hung out with these Belgian girls, Nella and Steffi, who we also knew from the Sultan Hotel. Yes. And like Steffi cut my hair. Like I ended up having a love affair with her like a year later in Thailand. I mean, it's just, you can't make this stuff up, but this was my life. You know, they just this I've random. Pictures of, that. of my haircut. Yeah, yeah, I'll send them to you. I've got, I've, I've, i I'll have to dig through some old pictures, but I'm sure I have pictures. It was on a rooftop. Yeah, yeah. It, it's and it, it, I'll put those in the show notes if we can find them. But it, it was literally the last time I had long hair. Um, I yeah. had, I had my grunge hair, and she, she didn't really like it, and and you thought I looked sort of bohemian, but uh, and then I got my hair cut, and I thought I looked ridiculous, but it's how I still look today. I like I got. I got the clean cut look that I that I have today with these girls that from Belgium who were at the Camel Caravan, but we met first at the Sultan Hotel in Cairo, um, and so man, it was just it was just this. And another thing about Dahab is that I don't remember exactly what I did there. I know a lot of people go scuba diving in Dahab, but I didn't go scuba diving. I think we just hung out, we smoked some cigars, we went for walks, we practiced our Arabic. It's just I, I love that vibe, man. I never traveled with you until we did our road trips in the U.S. and, and France and stuff. But um, I remember you talking about like working as a bar tout in Jerusalem. So when I went to Jerusalem, I went to the very same bar as you, and I talked them into making me a bar tout. And I'm like, I'm an introvert. I'm not like you, but because you recommended it, I I walked the streets of Jerusalem for three <laughs> days, talking people into to going to this bar. And I sort of used my Dan Neely extrovert plan. And the the bar guys love me because I, I I got a lot of people to come to the bar. I forget the name of the bar now. The Blue Hole Pub. The Blue Hole. That was it. That was it. I'll have to see if it's still there. I'd only intended again intended to stay for a couple of days, see the sights, and then I think I was there for. I don't know, two and a half, almost, I don't know, a few weeks just working in this bar because it was just an amazing place. Everything about it was incredible. Yeah, it's funny how, like, my conversation with you led me to that same bar and then conversations that I had in places like Cairo led me to places like Syria, which is a place that nobody thinks to travel now, but I loved Syria. Like, Syria yeah. is, is right up there with Egypt, one of my pl- favorite places in that part of the world, if not the whole world. I just absolutely loved Syria. I went to Lebanon. I really loved it there. And these were things that I hadn't really, I didn't really have on my list. That basically, I'd gone into Egypt, I'd met all these crazy people who had who had insane ideas, like going to Iraq and, and going to Libya. But then, then also more sane ideas, like your idea to, to to go and be a bar tat, and you put me in touch with the Blue Hole people. And it's just amazing how, if you allow it to happen, you can just sort of wander your way into an amazing journey. You know, human beings. From who've had these really different lives and different experience and different worldviews in ways that you can't even contemplate sometimes, and you just meet those people on the road and you meet them often in hostels, right? Because it, it again, it's just such a, a petri dish for um, different backgrounds and, and conversations, and I, I, that's probably one of the most fond experiences I have of. Of hostels, I don't. I don't. I haven't probably stepped in foot of a hostel in ten years, to be honest. 
Um, but that's, yeah, I, I certainly miss that. I certainly miss that that element. But you know, as alluding to earlier, I get exposure to that in different ways nowadays because talking to strangers. I'm just a big fan of talking to strangers. Yeah, no, and and you've made a good case for it here. You're a guy whose life has literally been changed, if not in a huge way, in a very subtle and persistent way, by the presence of mixing with people in hostels. You know, as a guy who went through a specific path in the Peace Corps, then some ways led you to the job you're working at now in New Zealand, which we talked about in another podcast, to the fact that you're married to a New Zealander and living in New Zealand. Um, as a person whose life has been changed by hostels, um, it feels like we've made a case for staying in them. What kind of advice would you give to people for approaching hostels and what you can get out of them? I'd suggest, you know, two things, which is, again, number one is just talk to strangers. And, and you brought up this point, which I didn't consider is, you know, I bet there's a significant amount of population just looking at their phone, sitting at the, the you know, the, the common dining room table. Just get off the phone and, and actively talk to strangers and the second thing, and I, I think we've alluded to this, is I've always tried to go with no fixed plan. I've, uh, my, my goal in travel has always been, you know, I'm going to hang out in this region and maybe try to see X, Y, Z things, um, you know, the, the top, you know, the, the, the pyramid equivalents. Um, but, but the most exciting things you're going to experience in travel, and I think you kind of quoted me on this as a young, in the, in the original Vagabonding book, is like, God, I don't remember the quote, but it's like, you can see you can see the churches, right? There's a lot of churches. There's a, they all they start to blend, but it's the experiences of boiling rabbits and going to dingy belly dancing bars and just hanging out with people. You know, wherever you go, opportunities will present themselves if you let the opportunities present themselves. And so many times I've seen people traveling where like hard fixed itinerary and and. You know, that's cool. That's cool. There's nothing wrong with it. But um, to get some of those more quirky experiences, and I want to say more memorable, but certainly memorable to me, I think it's just putting yourself out there a little bit to the unknown. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to my book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There, which includes the Sultan Hotel essay can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.